Based on my experience, I think that nothing substitutes for being there all the time and creating a level of trust with people so that they know who they're interacting with always and they know they can count on you and they know that uh, you do have their best interests at heart because they can see that you're not just doing a job you're actually working on transformational change with them Welcome back to the Rethinking Development Podcast. My name is Safa and I will be your host as we speak with and learn from practitioners of all backgrounds and affiliations around the world. Each week, we aim to rethink ethical behavior and best practices through the lived experiences and personal reflections of different practitioners. Our guest today is Andrea Berniski. Andrea has more than 20 years of experience in the international development sector, 15 years of which were spent developing and leading programs and projects in countries such as Tajikistan, Peru, Colombia, and Russia for various different agencies. Her work has centered on issues such as environmentally sustainable economics and business development, women's empowerment, and emergency responses, among other topics. She is currently working at Purdue University, where she's the chief of party for a USAID-funded program named Long-Term Assistance and Solutions for Research as part of the Partners for University-Led Solutions Engine, which seeks to promote close collaboration around different development challenges between academic researchers and other development practitioners and partners, particularly in USAID operating countries. Andrea, thank you so much for speaking with us today. I'm very glad to be here. Thank you, Safa, for inviting me. You studied international development in grad school. Can you tell us a bit about that time and what you were drawn to, what you were interested in, and what you were thinking about at that time of your life? Sure. First of all, I just um, got my degree in Russian language and literature, and I was in grad school studying journalism, thinking I wanted to be a foreign correspondent. But I was still you know, trying to keep my focus on Russia. That was really um, my main impetus at that time. I honestly had no idea there was such a field as international development, and it was much smaller in those days. So there were organizations like CARE, there was Peace Corps, but nowhere near as broad and deep as it is today. And so you just didn't really hear about international development as a career much. So really what I studied was different geographic focus, like obviously Russia and the former Soviet Union, but there were things like intercultural relationships, and there was some focus on international development development. It was, I believe it was a cross-cutting or a multidisciplinary topic where I was at university, which was University of Oregon. And so I took classes for that and studied politics, but my main focus was international journalism. And one of the ways, aside from just really intense interest in Russia in those days as it was changing, we all have our, our special geographic focuses and who knows why we're drawn to what we're drawn, but that was mine. One thing I started doing a lot of research on 
on was uh, communications in international journalism, and especially the McBride Report, which was headed by Sean McBride. Um, and this is called One or Many Voices, One World, and it was through UNESCO. And the concern was the concentration and commercialization of the media and the implications that had for social development, not just in developing countries, but especially in the developed world and control by, okay, maybe we're not controlled by the government, but we're controlled by commercial interests and very large commercial interests. And that was a real, aside from then my my ongoing interest in all things Russia at that time, the almost the end of the Soviet Union, I was really interested in this and how media can promote development or, or really be more um, controlling of the paths that countries take of development. And I studied that one in my master's thesis topic, actually. I went to Russia and spent a lot of time there interviewing my friends who were journalists and finding out about, okay, well, here the state isn't controlling the media anymore or barely seeing the first steps of corporate interests taking over control of the media. So really, I entered in that way, which was really odd, I think. And I was at the same time, I was also on the board of a sister city committee in Eugene, Oregon. Um, and Eugene had a, the sister city of Irkutsk. And I got to go there and help set up various kinds of exchanges between government and business people in that region, civil society people, and then bringing people to also Oregon. And really, that was my entree into development and kind of went from there. There's so many interesting issues, ethical issues you mentioned, like corporate interest in media or generally the control and impact that media can have on development issues. So after that, once you began to work in the international development sector through some of perhaps your earlier jobs, what were some of the experiences or challenges you had? How was it different to be applying what you had studied or what you had spent time researching and thinking about? Or what was the difference between being a practitioner in the field and what you had expected perhaps before? When you study things, or even when you just go over for a short time, you're really focused on a, a specific kind of sectoral, either sectoral area or some activity that you're doing. When you study a lot of cultural differences, you don't know really the power over everything you do that policy and that government has on what you're able to accomplish. And when I say government, I also mean people and communities are microcosms of that. Governments don't come from outer space and just suddenly drop over people and control them like the mothership. The people who are in government come from the culture that enables them and has shaped them. And so it's just this really reflective thing. And it was surprising to me to learn through work that it became very apparent that a country that had certain challenges that were thought of as non-democratic or non-supporting of civil society, for example, it wasn't that the people were just oppressed and they really would support that if only they were free to do so. There was really social structures that were recreating that all the time and from the bottom to the top and then the top to the bottom. And that if you didn't understand those kind of social power relationships but also just the things that were holding people in check through systemic structures, holding change in check. And that was reinforced all the time by what people would allow and what they wouldn't allow. I didn't understand just how strongly you have to understand all those things to even try to make any change in development. 
Mm-hmm. I see. The more of an understanding or a deeper experience of the social structures that are implicit in everything we do. You came from a interest and a background in journalism. And of course, you, you've probably experienced and you also think that words and language and messaging can be very powerful in a variety of ways. When you think of the work that you've done and your experience with language and communication, maybe in programs that you've designed or your professional experiences, what are some of the, the ethical issues that you've had to navigate when it comes to working with language, using language as a tool in your work. There are two levels on which language was really interesting for me. And one was I did study many different languages for a long time. And I almost went into the field of linguistics because I love I love learning and thinking about how we communicate and what causes us to be able to communicate and how words shape our worlds, really. And so with that in mind, I was really very aware of the power of words and how people construct meanings based on their own expectations and their own experiences. And I had many situations of saying things the wrong way and not really totally understanding how much of my culture was reflected through my own words and having to be very careful and thoughtful and intentional about how I communicated myself and also the communications that went out on behalf of my organization. And I'm not just talking here the kind of control that everybody who's in a professional context exercises in order to avoid risk or in order to avoid conflict. And that's important. But just to be able to even communicate with people what you mean and why you're why you mean it that way and what you're trying to do, it, it can be very fraught. There's a lot of thought that can go into the way we communicate and express ourselves. And then therefore it has an impact on the relationships we're able to have and perhaps the impact we're able to have in the programs that you were designing. And then later on the programs you were leading, what were your own personal concerns or ethical commitments? What were you particularly committed to doing well, doing ethically? So for me, I I think it was really a nutshell joy of working together for positive change in a community kind of way. That means making a good, what de Tocqueville would call a good community and the power of people to do that, whether that be here in the United States, but in, and then my doing it first in Russia and then in other countries, it, it was really this joy and synergy and how we could get together and really transform things. We could transform everything. If not for the fact that we are human beings and human beings always muck up everything I've found. I muck up things for myself. We all, we get together with the best intention and we just, our human things get in the way. Our interests, our our worries, our inadequacies, not to mention the systems and, and the ability or not of us to even change those systems. So there have been situations where I found it very difficult. Uh, situations, for example, where I've been talking with government officials that I knew could care less about the people we were discussing. That would really tell me, you know, you should give the money to us. We know what should be done with it. And I thought, yes, indeed, I know you understand what should be done with it. And it's not what I think should be done with it. Then other times when you're able to work with people in this synergistic way and it just keeps creating good things, not without problems, of course, but good things that people are committed to building on. And even you can manage to get those people who you would think would be the last people on earth that might work with you. You can even try and figure out what is their self-interest in making things better and try and work on that and build that so that good community results. 
You know, that tension between striving for positive social change and the barriers or roadblocks, whether it be government interests, private interests, other reasons that come up, that tension can be hard to navigate. But in your work, have there been any methods or tools or approaches that you found particularly useful or effective in your experience? The most effective tool isn't really a tool at all. It's actually very, in my experience, I'm sorry, I don't mean to put it out there that I have this wisdom I'm imparting, but just based on my experience, uh, I think nothing substitutes for being there all the time and creating a level of trust with people so that they know who they're interacting with always and they know they can count on you and they know that uh, do have their best interests at heart because they can see that you're not just doing a job you're actually working on transformational change with them and that we don't always get an opportunity to act at that level in development right now I certainly don't because I'm you know very far removed and I'm working more on kind of policy change and I'm not in the place where I'm hoping that people will transform their world in the way that they would like to see it. When I was working in Tajikistan, for example, I had an opportunity to work on that very close level with people every day going into this post-conflict community, working with women and figuring out you know, how we could change the world in ways that looked good to them and that offered them more hope. And at the same time, help the community to be receptive, at least not hostile, and gradually over time more supportive. But in order to do that and, and do it well and do it in a way that's lasting, for people who are who you're working with, they have to transform themselves and they won't feel supported to do that unless one, there's a critical mass of other people who they can count on because nobody wants to be the pariah, the only one who's changing in their community. And you just have to be there and they have to trust you and, and um, you have to show that support. Many donors, or many times donors have programs where they want to reach a million people or just a great number of people and create this incredible depth of change and that just doesn't happen. You you can't do it without actually being there in person and influencing people in person and showing your goodwill and, and that you put yourself at risk too. Creating trust is an issue that comes up when I, all the other guests that I've spoken with as well. Uh, how have you experienced working with donors, you know, in terms of the conditions that come with funding or the competition for funding or what are some of the ethical issues or just other experiences generally that you've had in terms of that relationship and how it impacts the work that your colleagues envision. I, I want to make it um, very clear to everybody who's listening that despite the bad rap that donors can get sometimes, I found that individuals who work for donor organizations always really care about development, at least the ones I've worked with, and I've worked with many. They quite often have very strong development backgrounds themselves, and they know what's going on, and they really care about making positive change, and they're constrained by their own organizations and the political priorities of their organizations and the relationship of their organizations with the host government. Many different things constrain them and keep them from being able to maybe support what they would support if they didn't have that kind of constraint. So that being said, for the most part, donor representatives that I've worked with have tried their best to help support the things that we were doing in the field. For one thing, if the donor is supporting a program that I'm leading, it's the vested interest of that donor representative to help me make that program a success. And I'm the one usually, or my teams are out there with people understanding what's going on and communicating that. And they want that to lead to success. 
you know, it makes them look good and they they wouldn't be in that role if they didn't care about it. So they usually want things to work well and they are just quite often constrained by those political considerations I've spoke of. Yes, in terms of the political environment in which this kind of work happens, have you found that you, over the years, you've picked up perhaps political skills or approaches that have helped you in terms of implementing the work that you want to do, given the different political context that you might be in at that time? Yes, I say that hesitantly because I still don't think I'm as good as that as I could be, but I, I think you've understand where the donor is coming from and you you understand they are operating environment and that people are pressuring them for certain things and certain perceptions that the work in that particular country. And so you help them navigate that too and avoid what they what might be considered very challenging for them um, and put them in an untenable situation. And it's quite a balance. I remember when I was working in Colombia, for example, and, I, and the U.S. government didn't want to fund people who were fleeing that had been sprayed with, uh, sprayed for coca. And even though in those zones, most people were forced to, either they were forced to grow coca by the, by the army Armed conflict actors, including both all the sides of the armed conflict conflict actors and other drug traffickers who had no real part in the conflict, but was there. And also, there were situations where people were just so isolated and they had no other source of income. Really, the Colombian government was not in many rural parts of Colombia because of that conflict. So, with the absence of government to support them, protect them, provide services, and they're on their own, there's no access to markets. So, what choice did they have? is a perfect crop. It grows no matter what you do with it, pretty much. So there are a lot of issues or a lot of context that people felt they had no other option. And yet we couldn't provide any assistance to those internally displaced persons and families who were fleeing those zones because it was known that they were, I was told they were criminals. And the Europeans didn't see it that way. As I recall, I wasn't, we never were told not to fund IDPs who were fleeing from coca zones, but we were told that by some representatives of the U.S. government. And I got the feeling that they would rather not have told us that, but that was the policy and they were had to enforce that. Um, and it made things pretty difficult sometimes for the work we were doing. And it was pretty sad sometimes to see those populations not being able to be helped, even though they, they suffered the same things as the other populations who were being internally displaced in terms of conflict, all the effects of conflict. There's often very vulnerable communities that might not receive the support that they need or they deserve. But at that time, working in that environment, did you ever find that your identity, perhaps as a woman or as an American or as perhaps Russian speaking, different aspects of your identity, did that ever help your work or hinder your work? Or how did you navigate or reconcile your personal background, how it was viewed while you were in a working environment? Yeah, I, I'm trying to think of any case in which it really helped my, my working environment, especially being a woman in the places that I was. It may have helped sometimes for, sometimes in, in different contexts, it's helpful if people don't take you as seriously uh, because they don't see you as much of a threat. And sometimes in Russia, for example, that was helpful. In other contexts, such as in Tajikistan, it was not helpful. Yeah, being an American was almost never helpful. 
there are some countries that really like America. And at the very beginning in Russia, really, that was fascinating for everybody and they loved America. And that was helpful at first. Then towards the end, when Putin came to power, that became a liability. And in fact, it happened that soon after Putin came to power, I lost my ability to renew my visa because at that time, everyone was being accused of being a spy. And, and, and definitely being a woman, for example, in Tajikistan had, had some issues. You often felt that you weren't taken as seriously or that would suddenly become apparent, here I am, talking development issues with this man and other Tajik nationals who were working on these same issues. And I'm the woman and his wife is serving us. And in his world, I would be serving and wouldn't be talking about these things at all. And, and sometimes that awareness made things a little uncomfortable, thinking that having somebody serve me in that role. Yeah, so indefinitely in Colombia, quite often there were tensions working with Europeans uh, because they did agree with Plan Colombia, for example, and felt that we as Americans were all representing that, even if we personally didn't support some of the U.S. government policies. We were always representatives of our countries, of the political environment of our countries. Mm-hmm. In terms of the differentiation that is made between uh, international staff and local staff and perhaps the differential treatment that international staff experience versus local staff, what have been your experiences or when you just think about the sector and the systemic realities, what are your thoughts or reflections on, on the difference between the two or any issues that come to mind? One of my first lived experiences of the differential treatment was even before I really started working in development, and it was when I was gathering information for my master's thesis and going to Russia. And when Russia first opened up and Americans first started going there, although we were very few, and on planes over to, to Moscow at the time, I would be one of the like one or two women on board. It was all men doing business development work and things. But what used to happen is we'd go to the regions and get off the plane, and we would be be treated very differently. We would be allowed to board first. We would be given extremely preferential treatment. And the rest of the Russians would be treated quite shabbily by everybody who had control over, you know, boarding the airplane or anything. We would always be given really preferential treatment. And it was quite embarrassing. We didn't like it at all. And there was nothing we could do about it. In terms of working in development, usually the places I worked, I was one of maybe two or three expats. Sometimes I was the only one there for most of the time. But no matter who else was working with me, I was always, my close team were always people who were from the national, were, were the national staff. And I couldn't have done my work at all without insights from them. So these people who became my close friends and are still my friends, and I would work very hard with communities on, on change, they would tell me what was really going on that I didn't understand. And it quite often, even these people were people from a higher class or they were more educated than the communities we worked in. And sometimes they didn't really know. You would think that people who live in the same countries know all about the different lived experiences of different people in different classes. But just as the case here in the U.S., you might not necessarily know, or I might not necessarily know what it's like to live in a ghetto, for example, in the inner city, if I haven't done that. And these people who I worked with didn't necessarily know or even speak Tajik very well. If I'm talking about Tajikistan, they spoke Russian and they didn't really understand the lived experiences of people in that community. But they still knew what was going on from their cultural insights and in ways that they could tell me, okay, this is happening and this is something we have to address. And if I didn't have the strong trust of those people, if those people hadn't been by my side constantly as my friends and colleagues, then I would have never been able to have anything be accomplished with our projects. 
You mentioned the cultural nuances, the cultural practices that sometimes you have to navigate in your work. When it came to issues that really came up in your programs, the changes you want to accomplish, whether it's through services or policies, were there times where you had to navigate cultural practices that perhaps your organization didn't agree with, but was widely accepted in the country you were working in? And it's often difficult to work around that. What have been your experiences or what are some of your reflections on that challenge? That happened. Um, I wouldn't say they were things that I necessarily that I had to do that my organization didn't agree with. I would say that there were contexts that either my organization didn't believe. Like all of my situations in Russia, especially there came a time where I, I had I was interviewed by the KGB and was followed around by them. And people sat next to me on the plane and told me about how much better the KGB were. They call them the FSB now, but it's the same. How much better they are than the, the CIA. And when I would tell those things, in my Gary, who's my husband now, who worked with me in Russia, in most of the countries that I worked in, had the same kind of experiences. And we would tell our organizations and they just wouldn't believe us. So there was quite a lot that went on that was just like they found it just too far out. And so then you would just have to try and work and get things done, knowing that people just thought you a curiosity almost. In Tajikistan, I had an interesting situation where in order to work in the community I worked in, there came a certain time when I had to meet with a warlord who was a very conservative Islamic warlord leader and had a host of young men who would die for him and he was training them and he had been one of the main leaders in the civil conflict that had happened right before we arrived. And this guy was quite honestly nuts. He's in the he's in the media often with respect, especially when new scuffles or bordering on conflict arises. And he was training in Russia in the military somehow there. And he would come back and forth, but he was a, a kind of leader of the community I was working in, an unofficial leader that the government officials all warned us don't meet with him. But there came a point where I had to meet with him because he thought we were trying to enslave people by giving them microcredit. And we had to negotiate the terms for that with him so it would reflect more Islamic, Islamic loan systems and telling him that nobody was making a profit off of this. This was a community self-help group kind of loan situation where anything that was left over from the loans went right back in to support that loan fund. And just you know, discussing it with him and, and getting his buy-in and he ended up you know, creating some buildings for us and being supportive, but also was pretty nuts in, in terms of, of some of the ways he would react and some of the things he would say. And those are the kinds of things that, that you need to do if you want to, to be able to operate in a place. That's such an in interesting example, as well as the fact that at the end, he did support you in some ways and there was some kind of something good that came out of it. <laughs> yeah, he supported us in many ways, but he didn't stop being, to my mind, a little bit of a scary and threatening figure. <laughs> So, yeah, 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 but some good came out of it. We, we, we got to, and the women that we worked with got to do their self-help loan group and, and open some social enterprises, and, and that was seen as okay and not threatening Islam in their community. We engaged people who were from the Islamic, it was a, a scholarly institute for Islamic studies and people there would, you know, we would engage them to come and speak about what the Quran really says instead of how it was interpreted by pretty illiterate mullahs in that community, for example. And he appreciated that we took Islam seriously and showed respect. As you started taking on more leadership positions, how have you experienced the 
process of ensuring accountability or ensuring transparency. There are sometimes challenges that organizations face. Have you ever come across any cases of, I don't know, perhaps corruption or mismanagement? Or what have been your experiences with ensuring accountability and transparency? That's a really difficult thing and, and a really good question. So it's almost impossible to ensure accountability to stakeholders is one thing. Transparency with respect to donor funds and those sort of things. When you're working in countries that I worked in, people were pretty corrupt. All I mean, this is the way things were done. Everybody got their cut, right? So, for example, in Russia, there was no way that I could actually hold accountable people that were in positions, higher positions than I was, who were maybe my partner organization who were getting the the bank, the funds through the bank account. And then everything would look good on paper, but people have ways of siphoning things off. Um, In Tajikistan, people, even in my own office, I would have to constantly, I had my trusted group of people who would tell me what was going on. And they were the ones that would point out these things were happening and say, this is going on. And it, it, it was pretty bad in Tajikistan, I have to say. It got to the point where I would be constantly looking for things when I would be signing accounts, papers, and documentation for spending. But it was to the point where if it wasn't in my face and if it were so impossible to find, then there was just, I figured there was nothing I could do about it. But many times there were things I could find. I remember ordering a milk tank for a women's bakery that we, and I, I specified that it, you know, it would cost this much and these would be the, the specifications for the, the product and it was delivered and it was supposed to be stainless steel and it had cost a lot of money and um, it wasn't stainless steel, it was obviously painted silver. And I just felt if it's at a point where it just affronts my intelligence, do, do these people think I'm a fool not to know the difference between these things? And then I would, even though I would sometimes create a little bit of conflict by saying, no, I'm sorry, take it back. This is not stainless steel. This is painted silver. And our bookkeeper would say, no, it's not. It's, <laughs> I would have to argue about that fact and show him a fork and say, this is stainless steel. That is painted silver and see how it's flaking off into the water. Take it back, get our money back. And knowing that these were people he knew and his friends. And, uh, and you've had a discussion with Gary earlier. And I'm not sure if he told you the situation with the suddenly missing huge generator that could only have been gotten out from his compound on a truck and sanctioned by the people who opened and closed that door. But, you know, we face those things all the time and we would have to put our foot down and sometimes be pretty, pretty stern about it. In Gary's case with the missing generator, he had to tell people, okay, you're you guys who are responsible for security and procurement. You are not getting paid until that is returned or you come up with the money among yourselves because it couldn't have got, couldn't have walked out of here. So little situations like that. With respect to accountability, there are a lot of challenges with that where sometimes people don't understand the way development works. So one thing comes to mind um, when we were giving out emergency response, both food items and non-food items to displace people in Tajikistan. And, and even no matter how much you make signage that says people with so many children get this. People with this many children get this. They still don't understand why you do that sometimes, or they don't they don't read closely or whatnot. And so you're constantly having to answer to things that you've done your best to make clear, or that then later you explain, and people still don't like it, uh, and they don't want to understand. And but 
in some cases, it is a matter of account true accountability. And in some cases, it's on the side of the project implementers. And sometimes it's on the side of others who other stakeholders who you're working with. Like when we work closely with, with government stakeholders, we had a case once where there was an organization we were working with very closely. And one person was, it turned out, had been molesting one of the children that was part of a group that we were overseeing. And we really, we had to call that person out and report that person. And the government officials with whom that person worked weren't really very happy about even knowing that. Not necessarily they weren't happy with him for doing it. They weren't happy that we reported it and called it out and made it an issue. And they felt that made them look bad. But we felt we had to do that for accountability. When it also comes to accountability from the communities you're trying to serve in terms of whatever the project or service may be, what do you think can be done better or what more can be done? Every situation is different. It's very hard to generalize. But in your experience, what more needs to happen to make programs and organizations more accountable or held to account by the communities that they're trying to support? They need to be more part of the community, for one thing. If you're just somebody from outside who comes in and you have this thing that's not really part of the community, then that's more difficult to navigate. But if you are working very closely with the community yourself, then you have people who can explain also and help hold us accountable. Yeah, I think that comes from close work with the community, from managing their expectations, not promising anything in advance beyond the next day, basically. So in that Tajik community where we worked with women, we never told them, we're going to build you a women's community center if you attend these trainings. We never told them any of the things that we possibly could do if everything went the way we thought we would like to see in terms of them promoting transformational change themselves. Because we didn't want that to be the motivator and we didn't want, I wasn't sure at a certain point how much we could do. So it's not promising anything beyond what you absolutely know that you can deliver and managing those, making assumptions very apparent, sorting out our own assumptions about how things will happen and what we'll be able to do and really clearly discussing those with people. But it's difficult in every environment, in every context, it's difficult because some people don't trust that kind of legalistic accountability. They don't even want that. That's not a real relationship as far as they're concerned. The the trust and the the cooperative work comes from knowing them and and being with them on the anniversary of their son's death and, and what you say and your word and things like that. And so our Western concept of accountability is not even really accepted in many places, in a lot of places. So that's very difficult to navigate. And then accountability, actually, in many cases, accountability becomes, you're my friend, I trust you, you should do what I need. And in some cases, that's not, for us, an ethical thing. Mm -hmm. So that's an even further level of difficulty. Right. There's so many different layers to it. When you think about your motivations in getting into this sector, in the work that you do, has it changed over time with having an experience in one country and going to another? Have you altered or changed your motivation or the focus of it? Or has that changed in any way? Over time, I would say I've gotten a little more tired, not from development work, but from working with humans, I would say, because it's not just in developing countries. And all of these things I talk about are context specific and are based on one culture or one political system. But you find the same kinds of things reflected everywhere in different ways, manifesting in different ways. When I first got into development, it, as I said, it was the joy of community transformation and doing things together. For And I've had experiences where that joy 
was, there was not that joy. There was working together and for things that didn't quite manifest in that way. And it all came down to human bickering and people wanting a piece of the action and their own, not only political agendas, but even personal psychological issues. And I won't say I don't have my own of those. We all do, right? But sometimes things don't come together in that magic way. And sometimes they do. And I've gotten more... I would say aware of the fact that those things can throw everything off in ways that you don't expect. And you can make tremendous change and then have it all go backwards too. That's another thing and a disappointing thing. And so I think originally I got into development for one of the reasons is for the joy of understanding other cultures, understanding the very different ways and the very similar ways that people are for really trying to understand the human condition because of my own personal curiosity about the human condition and um, what people are, the good that keep people are capable of doing together. And I think I also learned uh, about the horrors that people are capable of doing together and are capable of permitting when they take no action. Mm -hmm. And um, it, it can make you tired after a while and it can make you retreat into just a, the safest world that you can retreat into, which is the comfort of family and friends and, and not really having to stretch yourself. And that becomes boring very quickly and it becomes the call of going out and trying to do positive things returns. But you, there definitely is a need to rest, I would say, for all of us who would put ourselves out in situations where things are very different and we don't understand and there can be a lot of personal burnout and disappointment too. That sense of the need for rest or renewal or self-care, it can be so important in being able to continue something you believe in over the long run. Yes, it can. And, and also work on yourself. I've read a lot of Harvard Business Review kind of leadership things, and some of it rings very false, but other things ring very true. And the whole focus on um, emotional intelligence and leadership is one of those things. It doesn't matter what you call it, but the idea that leading is not getting people to do what you want them to do, but leading is knowing yourself and your weaknesses and your strengths and always trying to understand yourself better so that your interactions with other people are more positive. Yeah. And don't become a for you and don't become a misery for other people. Absolutely. The process of self-development and self-knowledge, self-knowing, it can be such an important task that never ends. <laughs> yeah, it never does end. Yeah. And that's hard too, but it's also very renewing. If you go back to that and for all of the difficult things, if you go back to, yes, but I'm knowing myself better and I'm knowing the world better and it's always enlightening and exciting and this is what the world is basically this is what the world is so eventually you transitioned to working at purdue university could you tell us about that decision and also what you're working on in this role Mm -hmm. This decision was not really my decision, although I accepted it. First of all, I had worked for a university before. One of my first leadership positions in development came quite unexpectedly to me through my Washington State University in Russia experience, where the person who was the chief of party ended up having to leave. And I replaced them because I spoke Russian and I knew a lot about Russia, but I never really led a major development project. And that was a huge learning curve. But I enjoyed very much working at a university in Russia and having my employer be a university and having it be a place where there were many different disciplines that could contribute to, I guess they call them now evidence-based solutions, really curious minds that were at work trying to find solutions to things and, and had also technical expertise to do it. Sometimes that came up that they might not have known how to apply it very well, but that's another issue. 
So that was, I like academia and that I like being around students, people who are learning their just possibilities are just, just the idea of all the rich with possibilities the university environment is and how much learning is promoted. There are a lot of challenges as well, but those things are definitely present and exciting. At the time, you know, we had left Columbia, my husband and I, we just come back to the United States because our, our younger daughter has Down syndrome. We felt that she was not, she was reaching a point where people were starting to be biased towards her. She wasn't a cute little blonde girl running around anymore. She was obviously a girl with special needs and becoming older and we she was facing some challenges that we knew would only get worse with time. And she really wasn't progressing in learning because there weren't necessarily people that had the same level of expertise teaching special needs children. And so we decided we would come back to the United States. Anyway, we had got reached a both reached point where we were tired of being foreigners all the time and representing our government, <laughs> even whether we disagreed at the time or not with that government. So we came back and I was the first one to uh, take on a new position. It was with an organization where I had a job focusing on girls empowerment, which was really exciting to me. And so I took that on in Washington, D.C. and my husband was supposed to follow me. He ended up getting offered a job at Purdue for the Center for Global Food Security. He works here with with that center. And it was a dream job for him and has been a dream job for him. And I knew that. And mine was a two-year project and it was time-bound and I could have sought more positions with my organization, but decided, no, okay, I'll come to Indiana and um, join my husband and daughter there at the end of the project. And for a while, it was very challenging to live apart from them and just come back from time to time when I could. And that's what we had to do. And I did do, I didn't get a point where I didn't know what I would find here. And I just thought, okay, that's fine. I'm going to be here with my family and I'll find something that's meaningful for me. And luck would have it that a position arose that was a very good, I would say, starter position. And it was in international agriculture and it was much more low powered and low paid. And the position was much more junior than I'd been used to for more than two decades. But but still, it was a good position to start out. It got my foot in the door and, and that was how I ended up here and then just moved on to different positions in over the years. So now you're working on a project that promotes this closer collaboration between academic researchers and development practitioners, correct? Correct. The, the idea is that to promote research, evidence-based solutions to international development challenges. And that resonated with me because I had been in many situations where I thought, wow, I could really use an engineer to help me do this. Or many times I thought I could use a researcher to help me design this, not evaluation, but sometimes very much deeper even challenges that it, it would have been very helpful to have somebody in academia who I would even be able to profile in my thoughts um, helping me. But you, if you don't have that cost built into your budget, if you don't know really how to reach out to researchers, and there's so much cultural difference. Um, researchers, you have to think about their research, their teaching loads. So they have a different time frame. They might have a conceptual framework that they have to operate on, which is their research focus. And maybe they have skills and experience that could be used, but they might not have incentives or interest in applying that to a development challenge. And sometimes they really don't understand the development world. And so from both sides, it really requires people understanding those very different contexts and realities and worlds. And, and that's a lot of what me and my team do is we try and work with uh, researchers and with practitioners to help them understand the, the different worlds and the different incentives and the different constraints that both have that they can jointly design development solutions. At Purdue, 
I can't say Purdue at large, but the teams that I've worked with here, the most successful ones have come when an organization says to us, we have this need for research and can you help us do it? I work closely with a faculty member who, for example, worked with an organization to design a complete new system for emergency response. And the organization thought they just needed new software, but really they needed to look at their entire system and then map that system, map an improved version of that system and all of the forms that required onto the software that needed to be done. And this faculty member was engaged in that in some for some years in various kinds of things like that in another situation the same faculty member worked on trying to promote kangaroo mother care in uh, hospitals in in Malawi and so the idea was that not just behavior change aspects that people usually work with but actually looking at the constraints that clinics have that healthcare practitioners have in in allowing that to be practiced how does the workflow happen what is the timing and um, how can you arrange the space so that it can enable that and then we even have had an industrial designer design movable furniture for nurse stations and things that would further allow for kangaroo mother, mother care to happen. And the importance of that is that it reduces for premature babies, it reduces mortality by about 40%. So hugely important and, and really requiring what we had, an uh, industrial designer and an industrial engineer to, to look at those things. And those are things that as a practitioner, I never would have thought of. I didn't know what any of those professions would do. And I certainly would not have dreamed of, of recruiting people from those particular professions to do development work. So you can find expertise in the academia in places you would never expect. And it can provide some very elegant solutions as long as that, as long as the issue and the challenge comes from the development or from the development practitioner. And it's not a researcher saying, hey, I think it would be really interesting to develop this gadget or do that thing. And it may be just very related to what they want to do and have no use in reality. That's so wonderful. So do you think that these collaborations are increasing? Would you say that it's becoming more commonplace? Yes. I know that donors are more and more asking for it, um, not across the board and not in, in all. Even within donors, there's different degrees of receptivity and, and ability to promote this in different operating units, I would say. But I have seen it more and more, and I've seen it in, in various donors um, asking for this kind of collaboration. The degree to which people understand what works best in that it varies. So some people will promote research, not understanding that research actually, it's not the research per se that needs to be done. It's that close collaboration where there is an issue that is clear and that if you undertake that research, it will have a built-in use for it. And there will be people who are ready right now to use that. So you don't have to shop it around after you design this thing. There's already a place for it and people are co-designing it with you, those solutions with you. I would say that's not everybody really understands that real deep concept of what we call research translation. But that's what we're trying to promote is that from the very beginning, there's the solutions are sourced from development practitioners, whether that be donors or whether that be the donors implementers at any level from community organizations to international organizations, whatever the problem or the challenge should come from there. And then the, the research should be co-designed so that the researcher is, is already designing something that's going to definitely be applied. It sounds very creative and innovative, but also practical and usable. So that's so great. Does this type of work give you faith when it comes to the future of development work or what's happening now? It gives me faith because I don't know about the future of development work because there's so many other things and political issues that go into um, what people are able to do. But 
what I like about it, it feeds into my my own attraction to really collaborative ways of, of solving problems and, and things that aren't just the guesswork of people. I'd like to do this and therefore that's what we're going to do. It's at least things that have been that are being carried out in more with more of a scientific method about whether it actually works or not and what does it respond to. That comes with behavior change issues too. So it's not just that you can develop a gadget and then everybody's going to be, oh, thank you so much for that gadget that solved everything. So that whatever it is that you're designing has to be something that really people have asked for in the first place. And you have the context to, whether it be a gadget or a policy or a practice, people have already asked for it and have already acknowledged the need for it. So it gives me faith within how we are doing things, even if sometimes the political systems can be challenging to operate in. Absolutely. Are there any final thoughts or reflections that you would like to share with us? I think we touched on a great many things and pretty comprehensively about my experience and certainly about my beliefs and and my focus. But one thing that I've noticed, and it seems to be more and more understood, maybe it's just my perception that it is, but it seems the lines between what is called the developing world and what is called the developed world are blurring a lot now. It seems that people are understanding that the big challenges that are out there are really things that are challenges for us all, and that really many of them threaten our existence, and they don't threaten the existence of people in the developing world only. And so that line is becoming more blurred, and we're seeing the solutions that we are proposing for the developing world. We want them to be things that we can actually use too in the context where they're needed in the United States or in other of the what are con- traditionally thought of as developed countries. Yeah, I really think those lines are, are being blurred and we're looking for global solutions for everybody. Mm-hmm. There are so many layers of interconnection and broader international environment we all live in that. Yeah, and climate change, the huge elephant in the room, right? With yeah. climate change, we're all going to be impacted by all of the things that are happening as a result of that. Absolutely. Andrea, thank you so much for sharing all your experiences and reflections. It's really been a a great privilege to speak with you today. So thank you so much for your time. No, you're quite welcome. It was a pleasure for me really to recall all of these things and, and to explore them with you. Thank you so much. Thank you to our listeners for tuning in. To keep up with our weekly podcast, please subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and Google podcast platforms, where you can also rate and review the episodes and share them with your friends. You can also follow us on Instagram, where our handle is at Rethinking Development. And should you have any listener questions that you would like me to ask any of our future guests, please feel free to email them to us at Rethinking Development Podcast podcast at gmail.com. I look forward to continuing similar conversations with you all in the weeks to come. Until then, take care.